looking at the Gospel of Mark and the one true king who has come to redeem and to rule and reign. Our passage, verses 40 through 45, printed in your bulletin, they'll be on the screen in front of you. Hear now the word of the Lord. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged and sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for he proved to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are strong and kind, that you're gentle and lowly in heart. Thank you that we don't just um, sing those words as a fairy tale that we hope might possibly be true, but you have given us your word, you have given us historical eyewitness accounts of your strength, of your kindness, of your humility. You alone are our only hope. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit, um, you'll send your word forth and give us ears to hear and hearts to believe about how much you love us and draw us to yourself. Pray the same for the ladies on the retreat um, as they gather together this morning for the last time. Pray for Wendy also as she teaches. Pray for all the women that are there. Pray for the new women that had the courage to go for the first time that pray they feel known and loved. And I pray for the women that went back intentionally to connect and meet new people and know that their labor in Lord is never in vain. And so we pray for their time that it will be used for their good and also for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So the Lectio 365 um, prayer and devotion app is something I really love and use on a daily basis. And this morning in their Sabbath prayer, there was a focus. They've had a focus this past week on um, the Christian practice of hospitality and how essential that is. And when God's grace comes into your life, it naturally sends you out in generosity to others and so the, the guy leading the devotion in prayer time was focusing on the promise and revelation that all who belong to Jesus are going to be invited to um, his banquet feast um, for all eternity and something we can't really even fathom. And in light of that, here's a little paragraph. He said, Lord, thank you for welcoming me into your family so that I might feast at your table and celebrate with you forever. Please give me opportunities this week to show true hospitality to others and do it generously, joyfully, and without grumbling. Now, up to this point, I was encouraged, eyes closed. Yes, Lord, I want to be more generous, more gracious. I don't want to grumble. And then the next line, would you give me grace to enjoy interruptions as gifts from you? Help me to make space at my schedule, table, home, and hearts for others. How do you respond when your schedule is interrupted? For anyone who knows me, it's no shocker that I don't respond well. George O'Hyatt used to be a pastor at Christ Central here in town and is now in Winston-Salem. And we used to meet regularly, and George is such a wise man. He used to tell me regularly, Matt, 
ministry, like an opportunity to minister to the felt needs of others, it always happens in interruptions. It doesn't happen when you schedule it out, when you plan it perfectly. Like I just so foolishly and naively want to think that if I properly prepare, I can prevent poor performance and set things up well. And just the sad reality of my own heart when my schedule is interrupted, I'm ashamed of how I often act. Even this weekend with Stephanie gone and having my three girls and then another friend of ours who's out of town, her two daughters, I was like, sure, a part of how I'm going to take care of the kids and love them is um, have a great plan and prepare. And you may be shocked to hear that my plan didn't work out throughout the whole weekend. We live in a broken, fallen world. I'm a sinful person. But that's not the real issue. The issue is just how my heart reacted, how I treated my daughters in those moments when I was just angry and frustrated by my schedule being interrupted. I think even fueled by the reality that I was trying to plan and prepare and be disciplined and diligent so that I could set them up to have fun, to watch a movie and, you know, have dessert or whatever the case may be. And I bring that up because if you've been following along with us in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has a clear purpose and mission. After he's baptized, he begins his um, public ministry and he does begin to heal people, but the main thing he does is he teaches and preaches with power and authority. And as news um, and his fame spreads, everyone starts to come to him. So in verses 36 through 38, we saw this last week, Simon, Peter, and those other disciples searched for Jesus. They found him. He was in a desolate place praying with his father. And they said, everyone is looking for you, meaning all these people with felt physical needs are looking for you because you alone can heal them. But Jesus says, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. Now, of course, there's a lot going on here. First and foremost, it needs to teach us that our greatest need um, is not a change in circumstances, physical healing or otherwise. Um, Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God and to learn how to live in humble dependence upon him. And that comes not through physical healing, but through spiritual healing. As Paul says in Romans 10, everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So then in verse 39, it says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And so clearly Jesus has a focus and a mission and you could even argue a schedule, an important schedule to keep. And then out of nowhere, here's this story about this leper. The, the story right after this that we're going to look at next week is when Jesus goes to his home and crowds hear about it and they pack the house. So he begins to preach and teach about the good news of the kingdom. It's so crowded that a group of friends um, cut a hole in the roof and lower their paralytic friend down to the feet of Jesus. So over and over and over again, the emphasis on the need that we have the greatest of is to be, hear the good news of the gospel for Jesus to preach. And then here he is and he's interrupted so it really poses the question, why is this story here? Well, I believe it is because it has a lot to teach us about our own spiritual condition that we are often completely unaware of. We are meant to see a picture of the devastating effect of sin that takes place in our hearts as we look at this leper who is experiencing the devastating effects of a disease he cannot control. 
if you're not aware of leprosy, it is an absolutely horrible disease, especially in this day and age when they did not have medical cures. It is a condition that attacks your body's pain receptors so you do not feel pain. Over time, your extremities begin to rot away. One doctor said that having leprosy means that you're confined to living in a painless hell. Now Luke, in his gospel account, he was a physician. He tells us that this leper was fully eaten up, that that his leprosy, it wasn't just beginning to start, that his entire body was affected with leprosy. So much so that commentators said that when this man came and fell at the feet of Jesus, he would have been mutilated from head to foot, rotten, stinking, and repulsive. In other words, this poor leper was under no illusions about how miserable his condition was. He only had hope if Jesus chose to be merciful to him. If at any point he began to suffer a lapse of reality and forget just how bad off he was, he had the entire community around him to remind him. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, shall cover his upper lip, and any time someone gets near him, they have to cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean, in case we haven't gotten the point yet. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. We can't even begin to imagine the horrible state, the humiliation and isolation of this man's life. He was completely ostracized from society. He suffered physical in every possible way. During this time, the rabbis even added an extra requirement that lepers had to wear a bell around their neck, almost like a cow that would ring anytime they moved to make sure if you got near them, you became aware of their presence so you could flee as fast as possible. They also added a law that said it was illegal for a leper to greet you. Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian, summarized that lepers were treated, in effect, as if they were already dead. Again, there were no illusions in this man's life as to who he was and what his condition was. He lived in complete and utter despair. Now, here's something that we often say and can give lip service to, but the Bible says that each and every one of us I do not care how good you think you are, how many good deeds you think you do. The natural condition of the human heart apart from God's grace is that we are spiritual lepers. Isaiah 64 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of our righteous deeds, literal translation, literal translation is like a filthy minstrel rag. I know that's gross. It's meant to be. And Jesus understands um, how often our sin nature blinds us to this reality. That's why the very first thing he said in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs alone is the kingdom of God of heaven the question we have to pose is can we see and own our spiritual leprosy can we cry out I am unclean Lord and actually mean it Dane Ortland in his book Deeper Real Change for Real Sinners 
says throughout the four Gospels, it is evident that morality, not immorality, is the greatest obstacle to fellowship with Jesus. The destitute, the rejected, they were drawn to Jesus, wiping his, hair, his feet with their hair and leaving all to be with him. But it was the religious elite that questioned and doubted and ultimately killed him. Can we own what the Bible says about our spiritual leprosy? One of the most grace-filled experiences of my entire life was when a man whom I deeply respected, who I wanted to respect me in turn, lovingly, kindly, but forcefully looked at me and said, Matt, you are not a good guy who deserves God's love. If God gave you what you deserve, you would be punished for all eternity and you would have no basis whatsoever to claim that that was unfair. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever felt the weight of your sin? I mean, actually felt it, not just a sense to it in your head, but actually felt it in your heart. Now, of course, the good news is that he didn't leave me there. In that moment where I could have easily ran away and, and, and felt a sense of overwhelming shame and, and self-hatred, he said, but the good news is that Jesus loves sinners. He is a friend of sinners. Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for his people. Can we own what the Bible says about our true condition? Paul Tripp says, it's natural for us to be more concerned about the sin of others than our own. It's natural to be more critical of the attitudes and the behaviors of others than our own. It's natural for you and me to be blind to the depth of our spiritual need. You really need to know that you're in spiritual trouble when you're more concerned about the sin of the person next to you than with your own. Spiritual clear-sightedness always leads to personal grief and confession, not condemnation of your neighbor. Perhaps your eyes are more closed than you think they are. Perhaps you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. Pray for the sweet, loving, sight-giving, convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. His presence in you is a grace. See, when my friend leaned forward and said, Matt, well, you, you are not a good guy, it followed. We were, we were studying Romans together. And he was reading Romans 3. And we literally just sat down and he was just going to read what we were going to talk about. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, the apostle Paul wrote it. Paul was a, a Jew who became a Pharisee and was very self-righteous, so much so that he was killing Christians before God saved him. So now he had almost an expert ability to spot the self-righteousness of others because he used to be a self-righteous, judgmental Pharisee. So he's writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing to Jewish Christians that are feeling so proud and better than Gentile Christians who converted because they didn't grow up trying to follow the law as well as they did. And so Paul, I mean, he, he like pulls no punches. He does like a, a Hulk Hogan drop kick off the top ropes. In, in Romans 3, he says, you need to understand Jew and Greek alike are all under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. No one seeks after God. Now, he didn't make that up. He pulled it from Psalm 53. But while my friend was reading that, I literally lean over and interrupt. I kind of hit his Bible, and I go, that's not true. I'm trying to be good. Nobody else in my family is going to Bible studies. There's got to be at least a little bit of credit I gain for what I'm trying to do right now. That's when my friend just looked at me. 
with knowing eyes. And he said, first, Matt, I want you to understand almost every single thing you believe about God isn't in the Bible, (laughs) which I think can be true for a lot of us, especially if you grew up in the Deep South Bible Belt. That then led him to say, bro, you're not a good guy. Like this entire image you're trying to build and portray of yourself as this good guy, it's just not true. And it's blinding you to your need for God's grace and it's cutting you off from the only source of hope and salvation. For everything bad this leper had going on, the greatest gift that he had that we often don't is clear awareness of his need for God's grace. And that led him to fall on his face before Jesus and to say, if you will, you can make me clean. And notice even the request, how different it is later in the Gospels from the Jewish religious leaders who would mock him and and declare that you have to do this. He just says, Lord, if you will, I don't presume that I deserve this, but I trust only in you. And what happened? Jesus, who had a super important purpose and mission to preach the gospel in all the towns about the good news of the kingdom, instead of being frustrated that this man came and found him and messed up his schedule, it tells us later after he heals him that the man disobeys and tells everybody, so it got worse. He had to flee to desolate places. And of course, Jesus knew that was going to happen. And what does he do? He still slows down and pays attention. Verse 41, 42, it says that Jesus, upon seeing this man, hearing this request, was moved with pity, which is a bad translation. The true, I guess, Greek term there, it really communicates more of a, his insides um, um, were turned in a way that he felt deeply with compassion the suffering of this man. Like, Like his inner being went out to this man's suffering condition. And then it says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He said to him, I will be clean. And then Mark uses his favorite word in his gospel. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This story is unbelievably powerful. You know, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, you know that Jesus um, can heal any way he chooses. He heals people without even seeing them or being in the same town as them sometimes. He could have easily seen this man coming, heard his bell ringing, smelled him, noticed him, and just said, okay, boom, you're clean. Don't bother me. I got an important schedule to keep. But instead, he chooses to stretch out his hand and touch this man, which again is a bad translation. It it, it is a better, more accurate description to say that Jesus, moved with overwhelming compassion, reached out and took hold of this leper. So Kent Hughes says this. He says, since this man was so full of leprosy, we can reasonably assume he had not been touched by a soft, healthy hand in years. If he had a wife, he had not known her touch, much less her embrace for many long years. If he had children, there had been no kiss, no touch, not even once. And now they were adults. Whatever his family status, he must have longed for a touch. Imagine that leper's longing for a touch or a caress. Time stood still as Christ touched him. What a Savior. None of this on the surface was necessary for this man 
to be physically healed of leprosy. But Jesus, our gentle and compassionate Savior, knew how necessary this touch, this embrace really was for this man's heart and his life. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly says that Jesus doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. It's one thing as a child to be told your father loves you, you believe him, you take him at his word, but it is another thing, unalterably more real, to be swept up in his embrace to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest, to instantly know the protective grip of his arms. It is one thing to hear he loves you. It is another thing to feel his love. Have you ever experienced the healing touch of Jesus? Have you ever experienced his kindness? Now, if you're thinking, what a stupid question. I'm not living in the time when Jesus is alive. Let me, let me explain what I mean by asking you that. I don't simply mean in a, in a spiritual, supernatural way that when we're in prayer, when we're in worship, that can absolutely happen. God can absolutely touch us by his spirit. But Paul says this to the church in Corinth, you are the body of Christ and you are individually members of it. He repeats it, do you not know that your bodies are actually members of Jesus. Translation, oftentimes how Jesus literally reaches out and takes hold of his weak and wounded, sick and sore children is through the hands of his other children. Stephanie and I, for the past year or so, have been praying and stressed and anxious, struggling to trust God with where our daughter Mary Rachel was going to go to school and she's at a new school for the first time in um, seven years. And we've been super anxious the past five, six weeks that we're just going to get a call. This isn't working out. This isn't a right fit and not knowing what we're going to do. Instead, on Wednesday, we get this email. It's just a kind of rote email the school sends out about the update in the newsletter, which if I'm honest, the majority of the time I just delete. I don't even read them. This one says, the student spotlight for the month of October is Mary Rachel. This is Mary Rachel's first year at CCP, and she is so kind-hearted. Mary Rachel is always checking in on not only her classmates, but also the CCP staff. It's not a day at CCP until Mary Rachel has had a conversation with every teacher, whether it's good morning, a high five, or asking if she can give you a hug. Mary Rachel will make your day. We love getting to know Mary Rachel every day. Now that was obviously encouraging, but it wasn't in a sense that surprising. For all of the hard and confusing and fearful parts that we've experienced as Mary Rachel's parents, we have heard stories like that for over a decade. Friday night when I had my plans for how to um, help the kids have fun, I ordered pizza. Mary Rachel wanted to go with me to go pick it up, mainly so she could just see a bunch of people. And I get there, and I had my whole schedule planned out, and the girls at home were getting changed. They were going to have pizza and movie and popcorn. We're going to have a fun night. Well, then I get there, and the lady's like, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, two pizzas, Matt Ham. 
oh, the online ordering's broken. I'm like, what? Why didn't I get notification for that? Sorry. And I'm like, well, can I order two pizzas now? It's going to be at least 45 minutes to an hour. <sighs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> this is an opportunity for me to experience God's grace in my interruption. I, I felt very little grace in that moment. So then I'm scrambling. I'm thinking about what other pizza places could I call? The kids are hungry. I'm hungry. So I'm like, all right, I guess the quickest thing I can do is just grab some frozen pizzas. Come on, Mary, so let's head to the grocery store. So we head to the grocery store. I start calling Lucy, my oldest daughter, turn the oven on. She's not answering. I'm mad at her, even though I fussed at her to not be on her phone. So she was obeying, but I was mad. <laughs> so we get in the grocery store. I'm like, come on, come on. We got to go. We got to hurry. I'm kind of dragging Mary on the aisle. We turn the corner where the pizzas are and see one of our neighbors. Hey, how you doing? And I'm like, great, which is a lie. And he's like, yeah, what y'all up to? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to get some pizza. And he's like, oh, yeah, we just got some pizza, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and internally, I'm like, I need you to get out of the way. I need to go. We're wasting time. And then he goes, hey, Mary Rachel, thank you for making my day this week. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, Mary Rachel stopped by the other day to see our dog. And um, I was just in a really bad place. And she said, can I give you a hug? And it just completely made my day. I hope we don't take for granted the opportunity we have to be extensions of God's kindness and mercy as his hands and feet, especially when our schedules are interrupted. You may be here today and thinking, you know, this sounds good, but if you really knew how unclean I was in certain areas of my life, I don't think you would keep extending this invitation to come to Jesus. That's one of the cool things about this story is it tells us, if you, you, you read it, the majority of the passage we're not really going to spend that much time digging into is that after Jesus heals this man and his leprosy is gone, Jesus sternly warns him, don't tell people. Just go to the priest and perform the offering. And there's no indication the man obeys at all in terms of going to the priest, but there's clear indication that he sins and disobeys Jesus and makes things harder for him. Now, I tell you what, that actually encourages me. It makes it abundantly clear that Jesus' mercy in this man's life was not based on his obedience before or after he was healed. Translation, that's good news for sinners like me and like you. But what's amazing is if you go back and read Leviticus 14 and you say, okay, what is the um, cleansing that Moses commanded? Then you were supposed to go if you were healed of leprosy. And tell the priest, the priest would come out outside of the camp. You weren't allowed to go into the temple. And then if he noticed you were clean, you would take two doves and you would sacrifice one dove and its blood would be caught in a bowl. And the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on you seven times. I know this sounds super weird to us. Like, is this an episode of Vikings with some pagan ritual? It's not. <laughs> and then after being sprinkled with the blood seven times, communicating you're only cleansed, through the blood of a sacrifice, the living bird would be dipped in the blood and set free. What was going on there? Well, theologians refer to this as a picture of substitutionary atonement. Translation, you were made clean at the cost of someone else. You were set free because someone else was sacrificed. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no area of uncleanness in your life that is so unclean that God's grace can't cover it. Our sin is no match for God's grace. Will we come to him? 
The thing that keeps us away from Jesus isn't our sinful bad deeds. As John Gerstner, who influenced Tim Keller, said, the thing that separates from Jesus is our damnable good works. It's all the things we do that make us think that we're better than others and don't really need his grace. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking about, one, the danger of my own heart of feeling that sense of despair and need for grace 20 years ago when my friend said, Matt, you're not a good guy. But also observing, yeah, who are some people in my life that I feel like I've watched um, come alive with an appreciation for grace as they began to understand more their sinful condition. And so I called my friend Jeff and said, brother, would you come and share a little bit about what God's been doing in your life? And courageously, he said he's willing to. So thanks for coming, Jeff. Okay, thanks, Matt. Okay, uh, my story, I'm a good guy. I've, I've been a good guy. I was trying to be a good guy for a number of years, and it, and it kind of all started with, um, you know, when I was in born, when I was born, I was born um, to a good man and a good woman. I mean, they were really great people. I love my mom and dad, but um, they were both, yeah, good people. So it just followed that they would have, you know, a good son, a good guy. And that was really my kind of a default or a trajectory that I was placed on and I've just leaned into uh, for a good part of my life. And it worked well for me. It worked well. I grew up in the church and, you know, people, people liked me, admired me. And, you know, I was just, I was a good guy. Um, I was not a good guy during some of my teen and college years. But uh, somehow I, I kind of skirted around that. But, but I still continued into that, that, um, that story into my adult years. You know, I got married, you know, became a good, good husband, I had kids, became a good father, and uh, it just continued to work and continued to work. And, and, um, and all the things I was doing to be a good guy, they were all good things. They were all well-intentioned, and they were all good things that, that we admire in our, in our church community, our church life, and serving others. But what was missing was, um, you know, as, as Matt's uh, taught us this morning, is just that, that awareness of, of our sin and our depravity. I was aware of my sin because I would sin and I would confess it. That's what I was taught to do. That's what I knew to do in my head. But I really, it wasn't in my heart. My heart wasn't broken. And I didn't just, I didn't experience that depravity of, of, of disappointing God and just how wretched I was. And how this really came to, came to a head, it wasn't any just sensible moment uh, or big life event, big tragic event, but it was really just kind of a, kind of a slow burn of just heaviness and burden and weariness of just taking on more and more and more and doing more and more and more and just trying to, you know, continue to be, you know, more and more that good guy, you know, in church, in my family, in my extended family, in my workplace. And it just, I remember at one point just, uh, just really, you know, kind of crying out to God and just asking, you know, I just didn't feel peace and joy that I knew was there. It was just elusive. And I remember um, just, you know, calling to God. And this was, again, a period of time where, um, you know, he graciously in his loving kindness just showed me. He helped me just, like, lay things down and just distill things and just said, hey, you know, it, it's all about, it's about me. You know, if you profess, Jeff, to be a Christ follower, then, you know, look, start, just look to Christ. 
What did Christ? Who is Christ? There's a, there's a lot documented in, in the Bible about Christ, the Gospels. Christ the man, what he said and what he did. So I, I really started there, and it really just began uh, uh, just a renaissance in my own life of, of really exposure to this Gospel that I kind of knew, but I didn't. And what I realized um, as I started to understand you know, God's grace, I started to understand it, it kind of, it, they tether back and forth. It's a cycle. You know, understand the, the immensity in the, in the, of God's grace and loving kindness, and then my, my, my depravity, my wretchedness. And, I, and, I, and it's, it was at, at that point that I really started just to struggle and kind of anguish in my sin. And that sounds like a terrible place, and it is a terrible place. But when it's tethered with God's grace and his love, you can immediately rebound. They all work, they work together. You know, I mentioned in the first service, and I kind of botched it, but uh, if you've been through Barnabas training, it's the concept of our depravity and, and our dignity that we, that we have through God. And those, either of those separated, you know, don't work. If we just focus on our depravity, then we're just left stuck in our shame and just in a bad place. If we, if we don't reconcile, if we don't contend with our depravity and just try to experience, you know, God's dignity, you know, we can, we can end up with, with haughtiness and pride or even just a kind of a false, you know, grace, so to speak, there. So they, they work together, and, that, and that's really the cool tension of God's grace. So it cycles. Yeah, it cycles, and it just, what's, I don't, I'm not remembering the science concept, but the, the waves, the waves just get greater and greater as you cycle back and forth. The more you understand God's grace, the more you understand your own, <clears throat> my own wretchedness and, and depravity. And that's really where I am and where I'm thankful to be now. And, and more recently, <clears throat> you know, I've, as I've understood God's grace and, you know, first it was God's understanding God's just forgiveness, his free gift of forgiveness and redemption for me. But then, you know, as it got deeper, I started to understand, you know, God, you know, imputes his righteousness on me. He doesn't just let me off the hook. He's not just not mad. He loves me. And then more recently, I'm experiencing in um, Zephaniah 3, the verse that says, God rejoices and sings over me. And I'm just still just like, just understanding that, what that means, that God would sing over me. Does anyone ever sing in your house? Or do you sing in your car? I can just imagine God singing in the car, you know, like I do sometimes. You know, you're happy and you're just rejoicing. So I just, that's just a sweet, sweet thought for me. But at the same time, I hold that next to just, wow. I am just a wretched man, and I'm just, so I'm just thankful for uh, God revealing himself to me in those instances. You know, and I, and I realized as I look back and as I listen to the sermon today of the leper, you know, I ask myself, you know, do I really, do I really understand my leprosy, my, po- my poverty, my depravity? Um, a lot of times I don't, and that's why where God has to take me, and I end up at the end of myself so often. And that's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to go. But I know that's the best place to be and the best place to go because it's only at the end of myself. I think that's one of the quotes in the, in the sermon notes. It's only when we're empty can we get to the fullness of God. And I even thought about this, this analogy, not that I need to overexplain this and I'm wrapping up, but it's almost like think of your tank. If you're just, if you're just topping off your tank, you know, every time, then you, you really don't understand like all that's in your tank so if until we're just totally empty and I've run out of gas a few times yeah so I know what that is but when, unless your tank is empty you really don't understand 
all that it all that's being filled, all that God's doing to fill your tank. And uh, that's just a sweet, sweet image for me. And um, um, yeah, so I was going to say too, um, the, back to the to the leper in the in the verse this morning. I felt like for years, and it's kind of the danger that any of us live in, in trying to pursue goodness or just trying to even get caught up being caught up into good activity and good things, you know, we're, we're all busy and it's a lot of good stuff. It's a lot of family. It's a lot of church. It's a lot of things, but, but it's, it's easy to, to be the Pharisee, not the fair, not the jerk Pharisee necessarily that's out there, you know, judging people and, and, and being a real, uh, real jerk to others, but it's the Pharisee who just can't let go of like that duty and just doing things, doing, doing, doing to please God. And that's not what pleases God. What pleases God is when we just get to the end of ourselves and we just present ourselves as empty vessels. So anyway, Matt, thanks for letting me share. Thank you, guys. Thanks. I love that image of you just riding around singing Taylor Swift at the top of your lungs. That's something I'll think about. Dane Ortland says this, and I want to end with this. Fallen human beings enter into joy only through the door of despair. Fullness can only be had through emptiness. That happens decisively at conversion as we confess our hopelessly sinful predicament for the first time and collapse into the arms of Jesus and then remains an ongoing rhythm throughout the Christian life. If you're not growing in Christ, one reason may be that you have drifted out of the solitary and healthy discipline of self-despair. Jeff and I were in a group that studied and read that book together, and that's one of the things that God used to wake me up a little bit um, to how I'd numb my heart to my need for grace was by observing how your heart was coming alive. And he would say these phrases to me almost every week as, wow, this is heavy. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined. And then he would say, but wow, this is good news. And that's how the gospel works, right? We are more sinful than we could ever imagine and more loved than we could ever dare to hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray and ask that your Holy Spirit will help us to believe the good news of the gospel in such a way that we, we come and we bow down at the foot of the cross. As Jeff explained um, throughout our life, as you continue the good work that you promise to complete in us that you've begun, the cross should always get bigger as we become more and more aware of our sinfulness and need of grace, the cross should continue to grow and we should grow more and more in our understanding of your love for us. And so I pray that you'll continue to do that work, even now as we respond in worship. In Christ's name, amen.